We're back in Hebrews today. It's so good to be back together. Amen? I don't know about you, but I do not like preaching to a computer screen. You know, I don't think we're a very vocal church, but, you know, at least I get a couple of amens and stuff, and nothing comes out of that screen. I'm looking at y'all, and my greatest fear is that I've been talking for 20 minutes, and I forgot to unmute myself. (laughs) Thankfully, that wasn't the case. So we're in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to cover verses 11 through 14. Por favor, abre su Biblias. Uh, capítulo 5 de Hebreos, versículos 11 al 14. You know, when I grew up, maybe it was just a generation, but I think it had been this way for probably at least 100 years. Every parent had a saying when they saw their kiddo kind of reaching up to get a cup of coffee from the adult's table, Right? And they would turn around and immediately say, ah, better watch it, you'll, what? Stunt your growth. Yeah, there's a few of us here. You're going to stunt your growth. And there was that just terrifying feeling. Of course, they use this for many things. Don't touch that. You'll stunt your growth. And the, in our minds, we imagine that I'm going to be the only one who's 18 years old and still the size of a six-year-old. And we really believe that. I especially believed it because... I was the shortest one in my class anyway, and didn't grow until I was a junior in high school. The thought of me willfully relegating myself to being shorter than the rest of my peers for the rest of my life because of a cup of coffee was very real. Of course, it turned out not to be true, but the principle remains. I think we all realize that without the proper diet and nutrition, you can, in fact, at least stunt your growth and development. Well, the same is true spiritually, isn't it? Willfully neglecting the Word of God results in spiritual malnutrition and stunts your spiritual growth. Not only that, it makes us ill-equipped for the difficult times ahead. It makes us ill-equipped to walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand. It makes us ill-equipped for the trials that strengthen our faith. And that's what's going on with the recipients of this letter. These Jewish believers that he's writing to, again, probably most likely a small church, maybe in Rome, are not spiritual babes. They're not new Christians. They didn't just get saved, but yet they are willfully stunting their spiritual growth from malnutrition, from neglecting the Word of God. Would you pray with me and we'll look at this text together? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We offer all praise to you that our family can gather once again, that you've brought us through the storm, that we have a roof over our heads and and even a warm place to meet. Father, I pray that our voices would be lifted ever higher this morning, that our praises would sing even more loudly, that we would really listen and embrace the truths in your word. Father, let us not take it for granted that you have saved us not only for eternity, but for the here and now to walk through this life with a called out body of believers and to invite people to follow Christ. 
Bless our time, Lord. Bless this message. Give me the words to say. May I speak with clarity. May I speak with boldness. And may I speak with the affection of a pastor shepherd for his flock in the same way that this author is doing for these readers. May this congregation know how much I dearly love them. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let me recap briefly, since we were in Genesis chapter 14 last week, and if you're wondering why we're in a series in Hebrews, and yet I spent time in Genesis 14, I would encourage you to to, um, get online. I think we have it recorded. If not, we have an earlier version recorded from 2010, and it explains who Melchizedek was. Because the author of the Hebrews refers to him not only in chapter 5, but in chapter 7 through 10, we're going to see a lot about this high priest according, in quotes, to the order of Melchizedek. And how Jesus Christ is not from the Aaronic line, the Aaronic priesthood, but from the Melchizedekian line. And how it's very essential to understand that as we navigate difficult waters ahead. If you will, turn back a chapter to chapter 4 and look with me at verses 14 through 16 because I want to get our juices flowing again as we dive back into this wonderful book. Now, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 are essential in understanding the section ahead, but let me bring us up to speed there briefly. He's going to start talking about the high priesthood of Christ. I think we get it that Jesus, our Messiah, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the long-awaited Amashiach, the anointed one. But I'm not sure we also realize that this king is also our high priest. Our high priest who made a sacrifice once and for all, his own very self. And when he had finished and ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God, the work complete. And yet he also stands daily ministering in the throne room, mediating for us. He is our great high priest. And that's very important to understand. The author has brought us up so far by giving us an Old Testament illustration. He's talking to these Hebrews. Remember, this this is a group of Jewish believers who are under a lot of peer pressure and outside persecution to go back to Judaism. You remember that? They're tempted. Times are tough. They don't know anyone personally in their flock who has yet died in martyrdom, but they know others, and they've heard about it, and they know it's coming, and they're starting to suffer. Their property's been taken from them. Their old friends and family from the synagogue are saying, hey, just come back. We don't care if you want to, you know, acknowledge this Jesus, but don't say he's the Messiah and don't say he's God. Let's make him an angel. Let's talk about him as a good teacher, but, but come back to your family. You're, you're in a cult. That's the kind of stuff they're saying. And so pressure from family and friends, outside persecution, it's all closing in on them and they're tempted to go back. And so the author uses this Old Testament illustration about how the Israelites, after the Exodus, make their way through the wilderness and are standing on the doorstep of the Promised Land. They send in 12 spies. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, Our God is strong. He will fight for us. Let's do this thing. But 10 of them say what? 
No doubt this land certainly does flow with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, and there are giants in the land. We can't do this. Translation, it's not safe. It's not safe. And we saw that this unbelieving hard heart has consequences. And of course, they died in the wilderness because of their unbelieving hard heart. We learned how to avoid this unbelieving hard heart by fearing God rather than men, rather than the giants in the land. We learned that a healthy fear of God, watch this, will help us to hold fast to our Savior and to the truth of His Word. And that's kind of the theme over and over again in Hebrews. Hold fast so you don't drift away. Draw near and hold fast. We learn that the church needs to have this healthy fear of consequences of disobedience so that we will hold fast to the Word of God. That in fact, we're not any different than these first century Christians. You can see it on the horizon. It's not only going to be outside persecution, it's going to be inside influence from family, from friends, even from lukewarm Christians. You're taking this Christianity a little too seriously. I don't even know how to answer that. Because if this thing is true, what does it mean to follow Christ? And so the author puts in our heads through this illustration and through these verses that we need to have a healthy fear that though someone may profess Christ, they may not possess Christ. Time will tell if they stay the course, if they hold fast, or if in fact they drift away. And that brings us to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Look at it with me. This is kind of the thrust of the entire book. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, what? Hold fast. Circle that. Our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Therefore, let us, what? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. After giving us this warning, after giving us this illustration of what it looks like to fear man rather than God, to, to see the consequences of a heart that, that chooses self and comfort rather than following the Lord, we're given these verses. And it's very interesting because this book ended by hold fast and draw near. But in the middle of it, look at verse 15 again. It says, but hey... In a very pastoral sense, our high priest, Jesus Christ, sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is like a coach who is pressing us on to stay the course, to give it our best. And yet in the middle of this, this exhortation, he says, and I've been where you've been. But it's even more than that. Because Jesus Christ not only understands our weaknesses... 
He's without sin. He not only has been where we've been, but He is mediating for us today. He is our great helper, our great high priest. And what it tells us is that all we have to do is draw near to this throne of grace in prayer. We need to draw near to our Savior, who is our high priest mediating for us. When we get pressure from family and friends that say we're in a cult, or when there's increased pressure and persecution from the outside, cost of discipleship, we can go to our Lord in prayer. And so he starts off this section, really in verse 14, but he, he really gets going in chapter 5 about Jesus, our high priest. And it's a tremendous encouragement to these first century readers. But then something happens. This morning, chapter 5, verse 11, it's like the preacher pulls up the emergency brake and cuts the wheel to the right and, and slams on the brakes into a slide. And he says, hold on. Before I continue on this line of thought, we need to address something, and it can't wait. Have you ever had a, a preacher do that? Other than me just doing it now? You know, where you're, you're in this line of thought, you're in this story, and he's like, hold on, i got to deal with something right now. That's what he's doing. He has to deal with something. Because if he doesn't deal with it, they won't get it. He sees what's going on. Hebrews, we have a problem, and it's not with what I'm preaching. It's what you're hearing, or worse yet, what you're not hearing. Three points will divide our time. Spiritual diagnosis, two, spiritual symptoms, and number three, spiritual prescription. Our timeless truth is believers crave the word of righteousness because it gives them discernment and fortitude to navigate and endure persecution. We must remember, as we're studying Hebrews, what is going on around them. We must remember that this is the pressure that is coming upon them. And there's a reason that they're drifting away. And it's not a good one. Let's look at the spiritual diagnosis. Verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say. Now, we've kind of already hit on what that is. Concerning him, we have much to say. That goes back to the beginning part of chapter 5 regarding Jesus as the high priest. Watch this. According to the order of Melchizedek. And so if you were to flip ahead from chapter 7 all the way through, I think, chapter 10, verse 18, lots of text on Jesus as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is a I don't know if you want to call it a parenthesis or a, 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 hey, wake up, i got to address something. But this is a break here. And what we're going to see in this break is basically an exhortation. And then it's going to progress into a warning. That's next week. And then it's going to progress into encouragement. It's going to sound something like this. Hey, you guys are, 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 are spiritually malnourished. You're stunting your growth. Secondly, you have to realize if you don't wake up and if you don't draw near, you will drift away 
and the consequences are eternal. He's not talking about losing your salvation. You're going to have to come back next week. Thirdly, he's going to say, but you know what? I have confidence that I'm not describing you. It's like the way a coach will say, I have confidence you can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see where I'm going? So exhortation, warning, and encouragement. Let's look at verse 11. The doctor's words here as he gives the diagnosis are are like a punch in the throat. I'm just going to warn you today, this author is going to hit hard. We've got to be able to swallow what he's giving this readership because it applies to us. It's going to be offensive in places. It's going to be even tacky in places. But he's doing this because he realizes lives are at stake. Verse 11, concerning him we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. You might want to underline that, dull of hearing. Now turn one page over and look at chapter 6, verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That dull of hearing that I just read in chapter 11, in verse 11, it literally means sluggishness in hearing. Hard of hearing doesn't really do it. Dull of hearing doesn't really do it. Sluggishness in hearing. And so then when we see that picked up again in chapter 6, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, you guys have learned enough about exegesis, what does that probably indicate? This all goes together. This is all one unit of thought. This exhortation and this warning, this is all going together. So keep that sluggishness in mind. In fact, that's the title of our sermon. I'm kind of a sensitive millennial guy. It's don't be a spiritual slug. Okay? Be encouraged, right? Don't be a spiritual slug. Hard to explain. It's hard to explain because... You're sluggish in your hearing. I don't know if I much like that. If I'm reading this, get a letter from a, a teacher I really appreciate. He's, he's blessed our congregation before. He's, he's, he's preached at our church. Sure, you know, we've been tempted to drift away a little bit. But he calls me a spiritual slug. George Guthrie explains this word so you think that I, so you can understand I'm not overplaying my hand here. It says the word could mean dull, dimwit, negligent, lazy. It was used in extra biblical literature of a slave with ears stopped up by laziness and thus was not obedient instantly to the call of his master. In the sphere of athletics, the word could designate a competitor who was out of shape, lazy, sluggish. And what we have here is willful neglect. A, a, a willful, uh, poor diet spiritually. A willful malnutrition that's stunting their growth. Now keep that in mind, I'm going to explain that some more. But the author is writing with such confidence that, as one commentator said, he's, he's trying to actually shame them to wake up because it's that serious. 
Again, these are not baby Christians. These are Christians who used to be interested in hearing God's Word. They were hungry to sit under the preaching. They memorized verses, and now there's this, eh, it's not so interesting anymore. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that. You know, sort of that complacency. And so the author is like a doctor. He's noticed that their growth has been stunted. You know, if you have children, you, you know the uh, anxiety that comes from the, uh, the checkups with your infant, your toddler, your child, right? We, we get used to hearing over and over again the word percentile, right? Moms, do you, does your heart just skip a little bit when they start talking about percentile? Like, what's wrong with my child? Sometimes it's fine, like, whoa, that's a big boy there. Yeah, he's in the 90th percentile, you know. You throw that, that term around a lot. But then sometimes it's, it's a little more nerve-wracking. Oh, I, I, I thought she was only three months old. You're, you're telling me she's seven months old? Well, well, yeah, she's in the 30th percentile. You can imagine how anxious someone gets when they actually take their child in because maybe their toddler's not speaking. And the doctor says, well, the problem is not the speech. It's that she can't hear. How much more when that stunted growth is attributed to you on purpose? You know, we we can't help physical development in many cases. But the author here says, you've fallen off the charts in growth spiritually, and you're choosing this route. You're choosing malnutrition, and it's very unhealthy. The author is extremely fearful for his congregation's development, for this congregation's development. He he realizes that that their spiritual malnutrition, their stunted growth, will dramatically affect how they deal with the persecution ahead. It will make them ill-equipped to be able to stand up, to navigate the waters, to see things correctly. They're going to be weak. The perception's going to be off. If you become spiritually hard of hearing, you're not going to know things like 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're not going to have any of the Beatitudes memorized, like, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. You won't know that you can draw near to our great high priest, to the throne of grace, and that he mediates for you. The point is, is that if you are a spiritual midget, you will not be able to draw upon the healthy nutrients that come from God's word, and therefore you will not be able to last in the battle. And so this author, while he's being heavy-handed with them, is because he wants their good. He wants them to be able to last. He doesn't want to see the casualties on the side of the road. You think this might have some application for us as a 21st century church? With everything that's been going on lately, you think it might be important for us to understand how important spiritual nutrition is? 
how important it is for us to crave the Word of God, to feed ourselves regularly, to get spiritually healthy? Or I could say it in the antithetical sense, do you realize how dangerous it is for you to remain a spiritual infant? Well, let's look at the symptoms and see if we don't see some of this perhaps in ourselves. There seem to be at least three symptoms of this condition. Look at the first one with me in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Let me just be real straight. Biblically, normal Christian growth results in multiplication. It's, it's, it's the nature of spiritual growth. Spiritual babes become spiritual children. Spiritual children grow into spiritual adults. Spiritual adults become spiritual parents. If that is not going on, your spiritual growth is stunted. And we as a body of believers need to help one another grow. Because you know that when, when one aspect of your growth is stunted, it creates a domino effect in so many other areas. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your work. Certainly with our Lord. 2 Timothy 2.2 is the model, though we see it in the pastoral epistles. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men or women who will be able to teach others also. Replicate yourself. And these Hebrews should be teachers by now, right? They've been in the faith long enough. This, this teacher here is not, they should be pastors by now. Not even saying that they should be elders or deacons by now. It's simply saying that they should be teaching others, watch this, what someone was willing to teach them. You've heard me use this phrase before. They're being spiritual stingy guts. Right? You know what I mean by that? It's another phrase my parents used to use. Share with your brother. Don't be a stingy gut. I shared that with you. You share it with him. Christian life is the same way. If you're not sharing what has been shared with you, if you're not replicating yourself, if you're not teaching others what has been taught to you, you're being selfish. There's no nice way to put it, and there's no excuse that works scripturally. And that can't just be isolated to your family. Well, I'm, I'm discipling my children. Well, I hope so. Who else? You don't want Christianity to die with your family, do you? Come on. He's like, replicate yourself. And yet here, he's saying, you actually need to be taught again. Now, there's something interesting. That word elementary principles literally means the basics of the alphabet. So it reads like this. You guys need to repeat spiritual kindergarten, and learn your ABCs of God's Word. That's what they're saying. Not only are they not teaching, but they've forgotten the basics. He's really hammering them. He's shaming them. Verse 12, And you, you've come to need milk and not solid, solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk 
is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Now, let's be honest here. Babies, little, little Judah, needs mama's milk, right? As great as Whataburger is, we don't need to feed Judah a Whataburger. We can explain to him how you can get it on Texas toast. You can get the bacon, double patty, the special sauce, all this stuff. But it doesn't make a difference because he can't handle it, right? Not only can his digestive system not handle it, but he doesn't have any teeth. Well, he might. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have any teeth, okay? But can you imagine someone being able to eat solid food, someone growing up, and then going back and having milk? That's kind of kind of grotesque in a sense. It's sad. It's, and this is meant to be tacky here. It's meant to be gross. It's, it's on the level of when you've seen some leche league mom who's still nursing her child well beyond what is normal. That's what you're supposed to feel. It's like, oh, these are not infants that need milk. These are those who have gone past it and they have forgotten the basics. And they cannot handle it. This is not a digestion problem. This is an appetite problem. They don't crave it anymore. The three symptoms are they should be teaching by now. Number two, they've forgotten the basics. And number three, they they really can't handle the solid food because they don't want it. They're spitting it out. And so if you'll allow me, I'd like to contemporize this for us. Look, we, we are headed into tough times. And um, if you want to know whether you suffer from being a spiritual slug, ask yourself if you've been a Christian for at least five years and you're not, you don't want to disciple anyone. You have no desire. I get it if you're not doing it because no one's explained to you or maybe there's fears, but if you're not doing it, you don't want to do it. It's a bad symptom. You're not bothered that you don't have a working knowledge of the basics of Scripture. It doesn't embarrass you at all. And theology seems boring to you. Those are modern-day symptoms of being a spiritual slug. And the concern is that if these symptoms are not treated, really, if we don't get to the root cause, it can get worse. And that's the way the writer writes here. Yes, he's strong with them, but he's strong with them with great hope because he comes back and says, but, but I trust that I'm not talking about you here. It's a, it's a nice way of saying, I'm, I'm trusting you're going to snap out of this and we're going to be okay. But he's got to hit them with the reality of it because otherwise they're going to treat it just like, like it's a common cold. When in reality, it could be stage four cancer. And it was these symptoms, these descriptions that were the reason that the Hebrews flunked first grade Christianity. Let me explain why. This is, this is the crux of the passage that is easy to miss. They were willfully stunting their growth, meaning, use modern day terms, they were willfully being complacent about feeding on God's word, okay? They were treating it lightly. They weren't interested for a reason. 
because they saw the persecution ahead. They saw the persecution coming. And if you are convictional about something, that means what? You have to take a stand. So therefore, they're complacent. You see that cycle? The author does a great job. He's basically saying, you guys are purposely not feeding yourself healthy meals because you know that if you do, you'll see how important it is to stand with your convictions. You'll see how important it is to get on the field and it's going to cost you and you don't want to do it. So ignorance is what? Bliss. Does that describe the first century, 21st century church? I mean, it's always played off as, well, you know, we don't want to go too deep. We don't want to lose people. You know, we got to be uh, relevant, right? We got to be relevant. And I get what they're saying, but ultimately, aren't we saying that if I preach this fat and heavy like it's written, I'm going to lose people. And I don't want to lose people because those people don't want to take Christianity too seriously. Because if I take it too seriously, what does your Christian family think about you? You're a nut. You're narrow. You're harsh. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. In verse 13, there is a term that is used, word of righteousness. He equates it with solid food. You guys need to go back and drink milk because you can't handle the word of righteousness. And he equates it to solid food. Now, let me bring out something interesting here. The answer to spiritual sluggery if I could use that, is not to go get you a systematic theology textbook or to go to seminary or, or, or to start reading the classics and, and talk about, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. That's not what he's talking about here. Certainly there is a doctrinal aspect of this word of righteousness. It's talking about the, the word of God. It's talking about the gospel. God, man, Christ's response and the application of how we advance Christ's kingdom here on earth how we respond in obedience and in worship to God. Yes, there's an aspect to that. But can I tell you, it's more, and it's a lot more practical than we realize. He's about to spend three chapters on the high priesthood of Jesus. So you would think that if they really couldn't handle it, he would stop here, and he wouldn't come back to it. But he's going to give it to them. But what he's going to say is, I need to give this to you, not just for doctrinal understanding, but for practical living. Think about what they're enduring. They're enduring persecution. The temptation is to go back to Judaism. The temptation is to minimize or deny the deity of Christ. And so the word of righteousness, the, 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 the word, the solid food that they're talking about, well, let me give you a definition from one guy. He said the teaching about righteousness, while it may refer to advanced theological instruction, it's instruction that stresses the costs and responsibilities of discipleship. Meaning it's understanding the word of God that gives you the ability to persevere during tough times. You guys are complaining about the persecution and the peer pressure 
And yet you're not doing anything about it because the very thing you need is the spiritual nutrients that will give you the fortitude to realize what's going on and to navigate it. You've heard me give you the illustration about second century church father Polycarp, who died at 86 years old, was burned at the stake and refused to deny Christ. They said, deny Christ, we'll let you go. And he says, these 80 and six years, he has not denied me. How could I then do it to him? How could this old man face the flames of martyrdom? He writes here using this phrase, word of righteousness. Regarding Christ, he said, Christ endured everything. Therefore, let us become imitators of his patient endurance and glorify him whenever we suffer for the sake of his name. I therefore exhort you to obey the word of righteousness and practice patient endurance to the limit. An endurance of which you have had an object lesson, not only in those blessed persons, Ignatius, Zoisimus, and Rufus, but also in members of your own community, as well as Paul himself and the other apostles. The word of righteousness is that teaching about God, man, Christ response. It's the teaching about Jesus that gives you the ability to endure persecution. Isn't that interesting? It gives you the ability. William Lane says, it suggests that what was involved was a regression of the community, and it was a failure of moral character rather than keen theological insights. This expression acknowledges a basic moral weaknesses aggravated by the fear of violent death. If the community had begun to avoid contact with outsiders, it's because they were unprepared for martyrdom. Isn't that interesting? So yeah, he's being strong on this congregation. But it's because he wants them to endure. It makes sense now when in Hebrews chapter 2 it says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. Okay, so what's the prescription? Maybe you've looked and you're like, you know, kind of like one of those, those drug commercials where it lists all the side effects or all the symptoms. You're like, yeah, I've got a couple of those. What do I do? Well, here's the prescription. Solid food. The word of righteousness. Verse 14. <clears throat> but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What is the mark of maturity of a believer? Baby believers can be faithful. Baby believers can even be knowledgeable. Only mature believers can discern. You can have those with a gift of discernment, but far and away, it is those who have spent time in the Word, who understand God's wisdom, who now know how to take it out for a spin. They know how to discern good and evil. Why? Because their senses are trained to recognize that which is good and recognize that which is evil. And they don't simply play it off when it's evil or when it's attacking. Or they don't simply look at, at what God likes and say, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of his opinion. This solid food grows us, matures us. It gives us keen senses of discernment. And it helps us endure. 
don't know if you saw this week, but in Canada, Pastor James Coates, none of you would have known him, I didn't know him, faithful pastor, graduate of Master's Seminary, was arrested for having a worship service against COVID restrictions. His family's not allowed to visit him. He's still in jail. And the requirement for his release is to commit not to preach. Guys, this is Acts chapter 4. And we told you no longer to preach in his name, to speak in his name. And what do Peter and John say? You tell us whether it is right in the sight of God or men, who I'm supposed to obey. As for us, we're going to obey God. This is not in Southeast Asia. This is not uh, in some you know, banana republic dictatorship somewhere. This is not in communist country. This is in North America. His lawyer released a statement. His first obedience is to the Lord. It is to his God. And normally, obeying Jesus and obeying the government go right hand in hand. But the government is forcing him into a position where he has to choose between disobeying God and obeying government, or obeying God and disobeying government. Now, how did Pastor Coates have the guts to not only discern good and evil, but stick his chin to the wind and face this kind of persecution? How did Pastor Coates know that this was the right thing to do? I'll tell you how. It was his steady diet of the word of righteousness that gave him the ability to realize that worship is gathering together because that's why we were created and not sitting home and watching a screen. It was a steady diet of godly wisdom that gave him the ability to say, I'm going to obey the government right up until where it tells me to disobey God, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to delight. It was the word of God who gave him the ability to stay in that jail cell, not even being able to see his family because he knew it would bring glory to God. Now, I tell you, you know, there's plenty of pastors out there who may have done it differently, but can I tell you the disappointing thing I'm seeing? There's a whole slew of them, some of my friends that are criticizing this guy. That's not really persecution. He didn't really have to do it. He could have kept just uh, having his meeting with 15%. No, no, no. He quickly realized that this pandemic that kills point half a percent of the population is far more about government control and suppressing worship, especially when the marijuana dispensaries are open and all of the liquor stores are open in Canada. I'm not going to stand in judgment over this guy. In fact, I'm going to say he's eating healthy meals, and that's why he has the fortitude to do it. Think about it this way. When there's an adversary coming at you, ready to strike a blow, how does a toddler react to that sort of adversary? Maybe close his eyes, 
Maybe scream, maybe throw up your hands a little bit, but, but there is no way to avoid or absorb the blow. You can't even hardly recognize the danger. But now how does a mature person handle an adversary who's coming, with, coming at them? They discern from afar. With great hand-eye coordination, they're able to either avoid the blow or absorb it. This text is basically saying, Hebrews, the problem is not your persecution. You're not eating your spiritual veggies. Go to the word of righteousness. Eat it. Crave it. Digest it. And grow strong for the battle ahead. Now I'm going to beat up the men here for just a moment, and then I'm going to dust us all off and send us out. I'm going to be honest. Christianity is the only profession that doesn't play by the same rules as everything else in life. No one would claim to be an engineer and yet wasn't extremely embarrassed that he couldn't pass baby algebra. That he had never progressed beyond calculus and couldn't understand quadratics. No one would be, no one would claim to be a pianist and never mastered chopsticks. No one would play tennis and couldn't hit a backhand. Why on God's green earth are men not embarrassed to call themselves Christians and yet rarely crack the operating manual for their profession? We claim to be Christians and we can hardly find Psalms unless we drop the Bible on the ground. We don't do this with anything else in life. And yet the text gives us the answer. Because if we crave this, if we understand this, if, if we really, really believe this, then it forces us to get off the bench and to get on the field and to fight the good fight and to have conviction and to lead our families well and to be bold with those others who don't know Christ and share with them the good news because eternity depends upon it. It forces us to face our own complacency and attack it head on. If you think I'm being too harsh on this, I'll promise you, in the Greek, this is a sledgehammer. I'm using a rubber mallet. So let's apply this. Where does it start? It starts with me. It starts with me. It starts with the elders. It starts in the pulpit. I need to never slow down, and I need to excel even more in giving us healthy, well-balanced, theological, and practical meals from the pulpit and good pastoring in small groups. Number two, you need to daily, first part of every day, every morning, spend time in the Word. And I just want to encourage you, cut the excuses. There's not one I've ever heard that's worth anything. If you need more sleep, go to bed early. But do not rob God of the first part of the day. It is your first fruit. And it will take time to develop a craving for God's Word. Swindoll used to say, give yourself two weeks of getting into prayer. It's going to be hard. Your mind's going to wonder. Give yourself two weeks. Fifteen minutes won't be enough. And thirdly, as you watch your discernment grow, teach someone else. Share with them. Care for another one's soul. Someone did it for you. Do it for them. 
If you don't know how to do it, come see me, Chris, Aaron, Martine. Come see us and say, I have no clue how to disciple. I'm scared to death. I don't even know anything, but I want to get there. Will you help me? We will bend over backwards to not only feed you well, teach you well, but teach you how to grow up and be a spiritual parent. It's why we're still here. It's why we're still here. If God was just going to save us for eternity, he'd have sent us to heaven a long time ago. We're here to advance his kingdom. And finally, plan on persecution and drink deeply from the word of righteousness. It is the only way we will be able to get through. But now here's the positive. If you're a genuine believer, you will crave the word of righteousness and you will endure. And our high priest in heaven will carry us every step of the way. Amen.